0: Our scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intellect I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Good, morning.
1: Good morning. We're studying the book of First Corinthians, which is a letter that the apostle Paul wrote to a first-century church. And in the passage that we looked at last week, we we saw that a problem had developed in that church. And the problem was that the, the congregation had fractured into a bunch of uh, little separate groups that were competing with, with each other, cliques kind of that were going around boasting about how spiritual they were, all these little cliques boasting that they were the best Christians in the church. And in today's passage, the apostle follows up on that problem by saying that if you understand the gospel, you won't boast about anything at all. There's something about the gospel that just it puts an end to human pride. He says, that, listen, if you understand the gospel, the only thing you'll ever want to boast about will be the Lord. Just Amen. boast about the Lord. Now, why, why is that? Well, the gospel is the message of how God rescues us how God saves us from from the the divine punishment that is to come upon this world because of human sin. So the the gospel is a message of salvation. And there are are two aspects of the gospel that if you understand them, they'll just make you want to give all the glory for everything in your life to God. And those those two aspects are this, how God saves and whom God saves. So first, let's talk about how, how... How does God save us or rescue us from the punishment for sin that is to come? Let me ask you this. Does does God save us by giving us deep cosmic truths to meditate on so that we can be enlightened people? No. Does does God give us ethical rules to follow so that we can be moral people? No. Does, Does God give us inner power? to transform us so that we can be stronger people. He does that, but that's not how he saves us. The, the way God saves us, rescues us from the wrath to come is by sending his son to die on a cross. That's, that's what Paul calls the gospel. Verse 18, the message of the cross. Now, when Paul wrote those words in the first century um, to talk about a cross well, it just seemed ridiculous. It was silly. It was it was kind of offensive. In in fact, it was it was foolishness. I I know that for us, um, for us, the cross is a religious symbol, right? That we see it uh, ordaining the architecture of historic cathedrals, or we see it formed out of gold and used as jewelry. So for us, you could say that the co- the cross is for us a, a, a symbol of beauty, right? But in the first century, the, the cross was an instrument of death. It was where people died. The, 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 the cross was a cruel inhumane form of execution used by the Roman Empire to, to humiliate their opponents, to annihilate their enemies, and to control. It was sort of a form of ter- state-sponsored terrorism just to keep in control the, the, the nations that they had colonized. So writers today trying to look for what would be a, a, modern, um, a modern illustration of the cross. They'd say the cross today, you would think of, uh, you'd think of an electric chair. Or you think of a lynching tree, right? So the cross was not an object of beauty or of devotion. It was a symbol of death and weakness and terror and shame. So when you you marched out into the first century world and you proclaimed, good news, I have good news, God has sent his son, and he died on a cross. Listen, when you said that, People thought you were just absurd. They thought you were nuts. All all people, I mean, whatever cultural background. For example, in the Jewish culture, in the Jewish culture in the first century, they placed a very high value on power. They wanted, they wanted results from God. And you can understand why they would feel that way. They, the Jews were an oppressed people group. They had been colonized by the Romans. They wanted God to come with power and, and you know, overthrow their enemies and set them free. They, want, they wanted a Messiah who could bring results. They, they had no time for a Messiah you know, who got punched in the nose, spit in the face, nailed to a board, and who didn't even fight back. It's just such a weakling, right? It's weakness. In, in, in Gentile culture, Greek culture, on the other hand, they, they weren't looking for power. They, they were into wisdom. They, they were fascinated by, by philosophy. We, even today, we study the ancient Greek philosophers, right? And so in that culture, they wanted to hear inspirational thoughts. They wanted to hear eloquent speeches. They wanted to, to, to contemplate profound ideas, They didn't want to hear about flies licking the blood of a dying Jewish peasant hanging on a piece of wood that was just gross. There's nothing lofty or inspirational about that. It was folly to them. And so this is why Paul says in verse 22, 23, Jews demand signs. They want some powerful results. And Greeks look for wisdom. They want lofty ideas. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles. You see, there's there's nothing about the gospel that would make you want to boast about it. Nothing that would bolster human pride. It was was just kind of a shameful message. That's the way it is today. We, We live in a different culture, right? We have perhaps different sets of values than they had back then. Huh? What, what would you say are culture values? I, I would say, could, would you agree with this? We live in a culture that emphasizes individual accomplishment and that, that places a premium on self-effort and self-improvement. We just, that's the kind of people we idolize are those who make something of themselves. So, for example, Forbes magazine one of the way they sell their magazine through the years, they keep coming out with these different lists for you to read. And here's some of the lists from Forbes magazine. America's richest self-made women. America's richest self-made superstars. America's richest entrepreneurs under the age of 40. So, see, in our culture, this is what we emulate. This is what we aspire to. Isn't it interesting? You never see a magazine with a list. You know, 25 people who never would have made it if they hadn't had a loving family. You know, we're not into that, right? (laughs) Why? Because we are fascinated with this idea of being self-made. I did it myself. No one helped me. It was my effort, my hard work, my grit, my determination, my ingenuity. That's what got me where I am. So this is, this is a core value of, of, of our culture. We like to accomplish it ourselves. They, they tell me that, um, as, you know, years ago when they first came out with instant cake mix, um, it was very simple. It was a great idea. You just have this box of powder. You pour it in a bowl. You add the water, stir it up, put it in the oven, and out comes a cake. No one would buy it. They thought it tasted horrible, right? Just, this it, is horrible. And so then the manufacturer said, you know, let's change the formula just a little. Let's make it so that they have to add an egg. All right? As far as they could tell, it tasted exactly the same. There was no difference. But once they said, you have to add your egg, you have to do your part, they couldn't keep it on the shelves. Everyone, they made billions of, Why? we just feel better. If we contribute something, We do something. Self-effort is our value. And then the old gospel comes along and says to us, you're helpless. You're hopeless. You are so helplessly lost in your sin. You are so desperately enslaved to your own self-effort. uh, centeredness. You are so deeply in moral debt to your creator. You can't do anything to help yourself. The gospel says the only thing that could ever help someone like you would be for the Son of God to take your sins on his shoulders and then take your place on his cross. That's the only thing that would ever help you. And, it, and there's something about that message. We might be too polite to say it, but in our culture, it just It just rubs us the wrong way. No room for boasting. A very wealthy American businessman in an interview with a newspaper once said this. He said, Christianity is a religion for losers. I don't want anybody dying for me. Most people wouldn't say it that bluntly. But, But a lot of people, I think that is how they they feel the message of the cross is foolishness. Things haven't changed in 2000 years, right? It just, it leaves no room for us to feel good about ourselves. No room for pride. The, you know, what is the egg that we contribute to the, to the, to the cake of our salvation? Listen, in your, when it comes to your salvation, the only thing you contribute is your sin. That's it. So if you understand the message of the cross, if you understand the, the gospel, you see why you just want to give all the glory to God. He's the one who saves us, right? And, and the boasting just has to stop. So the gospel puts an end to boasting, first because of how God saves. Secondly, Paul says it because of whom God saves. So let me ask you a question. What? Paul talks about those who are perishing and those who are being saved. It just kind of divides all of humanity in that way. Some, Some are responding to the gospel and being saved. Some are not. So what kind of people are saved through the gospel? The answer, Paul says, is those who believe. Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save Those who believe, it's those who believe that are saved. Okay, another question. Why do those who believe, believe? Why do they believe? Is it that they are smarter than other people? Is that it? Is it maybe that they're more authentic, they're more genuine than their neighbors? Is it that maybe they just possess a a, a more natural humility or an innate decency? Is that why? No, look what Paul says in verse 21 again. He says this, in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. The, The world, he's talking about all sinful people like us, through its own wisdom cannot God. All the wisdom, all the morality, all the thoughtfulness of of the fallen world is absolutely useless when it comes to knowing God. See, I guess what he's saying is all of us, there are no exceptions, so don't take offense at this. He's saying that we are all so broken in our sin and the gospel is so counterintuitive to our way of thinking that if left to ourselves, no one would ever believe it. No one would. So why is it that in a world in which the gospel just appears to be foolishness to everyone, a world in which people through their own wisdom would never come to know God, why is it that some people do believe? Well, Paul says it's because they were called, because they were chosen. Verse 22, he says, Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul says those who, who respond with faith, he says, they were called. Verse 27, he says, they were chosen. Now, he doesn't explain much about this calling or this choosing here Here in, in this chapter. You get to chapter 2, he talks about how people hear that call. He talks about the Holy Spirit in a deeply personal way, revealing the things of God to people. He'll, we'll get to that. But what he's saying here is that those who at some point in their life, begin to view the gospel differently, not as some kind of foolish, irrelevant message that has nothing to do with my life. They begin to say, no, this, this is the very thing my heart has been searching for forever. He says, when anyone responds to the gospel that way, it's because in some deeply mysterious sense, God called them. God chose them. I want to be honest with you, for years as a Christian, I I rejected that whole idea. It just didn't sound fair to me. I didn't like it. And then what I couldn't get past, I couldn't get past the fact that this, this theme of God calling and choosing people, it's just throughout the Bible. You can't read the Bible without seeing it. Here's some examples. Psalm 33, blessed is the people God chose for his inheritance. Psalm 65, blessed are those you choose and bring near to live in your courts. Matthew 22, Jesus said, many are invited, but few respond to the invitation. That's not what he said. He said, many are invited, but few are chosen. John 15, he told his disciples, you you did not choose me, I chose you. Romans 11, talking about Jewish people who come to faith in Christ, which is still happening to this day. It says, there is a remnant, Chosen by grace. And if it's by grace, it's no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. Ephesians 1, he, God, chose us in Christ before the creation of the world. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus. 1 Peter 2, you are a chosen people. Revelation 17, talking about those who, at the final battle, we will be found on the side of the Lamb, standing with Christ in glory. It says, those with Christ will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. So who, who is it that God saves? Those whom he has chosen. Now, the question i can't get away, I can't avoid asking this question. Are, are you thinking It just kind of burns in your mind why Why does God choose some people and not others? you ever wonder about that? Listen, we have no idea Bible doesn't say what what it does make clear is that god's choice has listen absolutely nothing to do with anything good or attractive or special or admirable about those whom he has chosen. Nothing like that. In fact, Paul drives that home. He kind of rubs their faces in it. For starting at verse 26, he says, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by foolish human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Can't you imagine the little groups boasting about how great they were? They're like, oh boy, I'm, I'm one of them. Yeah, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world, the despised things, the things that are not. God chose absolute nothings to nullify the things that are. Why? Here's, here's the punchline. So that no one may boast before him. So you know what this passage would would tell us? It would say this. If you are are one of God's chosen ones, this doesn't mean you're better than anyone else in the world. You're chosen. You're not choice. All right? doesn't mean you're any better than anyone else anywhere in the world. In fact, it probably means that you're one of the worst. It seems to be saying here that, that in general, maybe not always, but in general, God, God likes to choose the least likely candidates to be recipients of his grace. Why? So he can just kind of show off his glory so that he gets all the credit for it. So do you understand? This is the point Paul is making. Do you understand why Christians should never boast or look down on anyone? Or, or, or talk dismissively of those who are in lifestyles that the church doesn't approve of. Or, or, or just, just kind of look down on the rest of the world. Now, let's be honest. Christians have a reputation for doing this. But if we understand the gospel, we'll never do that. So, someone has said that every Christian is like the turtle that woke up one day sitting on top of a fence post. And what did the turtle say? The turtle said, I have no idea how I got here, but I know I didn't do it myself. Every Christian would say, I don't know why somebody is, I know my weakness, I don't know why somebody as self-centered and unbelieving as me came to faith in Jesus. Can you imagine? But I know I didn't do it myself. In his mercy, God allowed me to hear the gospel. Many millions don't. In his mercy, God softened my heart to receive many millions that doesn't happen to but he gets all the glory for it he gets all the praise now one question to close on um have you ever asked this how do you know if you're one of the chosen how do you know let me ask you this question Are you trusting Jesus as your Savior? I mean, just resting on him and what he did for your salvation. Are you trusting him? If you are, you're one of the chosen. God chose you. And you you might be here today saying, you know, I, I I don't know if I do believe, but I Something in me really wants to. I want to trust Jesus. If that's the way you're feeling, then I think God is calling you, choosing you right now. So just respond with faith. Just trust him. This is for you. But at the end of the day, and, and I don't know how this, all of this makes you feel, it just makes me feel so happy. Does it give you joy just to kind of say, you know what, I don't, if I know the gospel, I I realize I'm a loser. I realize I don't deserve anything. And I realize that I kind of hit the lottery of grace. God gave everything to me. So I don't have to prove anything to anyone ever again. I don't have to prove that I have it together. I don't have to prove my family is perfect. I don't have to prove I have all the answers. I don't have to prove I have strong faith. I know I don't have these things. I just have to give praise and glory and honor to my Savior and tell other people the wonderful message of the cross. Amen. Would you pray with me? We thank you for amazing grace. It is more amazing than we can imagine. And we thank you that that in your love for helpless, undeserving sinners, you decided to come in the person of your son and take our place. And we thank you that you offer full forgiveness and new eternal life to anyone and everyone who just trusts Jesus. Thank you for opening our hearts to this truth. In Christ's name,
0: amen.